And now, on today's program. Let's see where it takes us today. Roger that. And welcome aboard. Capturing this millisecond. It's a fraction of a second. It's the only thing interesting. Welcome to the Fujilove Podcast. Today we talk to a well-established visual creator who has left his Wall Street career to co-found, together with his wife, his own production company. The two are in charge of a company called Three Blind Men and an Elephant Production. Of course, during this podcast, we will find out why the company has this memorable name, and there is definitely a meaning behind that. We can talk many things with our guest, as he states on his homepage, video is just the start of the conversation. We can add writer, teacher, director, web-centric, video maker, photographer, blogger, and YouTuber in the mix. In short, this man loves to craft stories and has a large backpack of experience that he will share with us today. The overall subject of our conversation is photographers and social media, but let's start with first things first. Welcome to the podcast, Hugh Brownstone. Jens, thanks so much for inviting me on. Such a pleasure to have you. Let me ask you the same question I ask everybody coming on. Who is Hugh Brownstone? Well, uh, I am a 62-year-old former Wall Streeter, global Fortune 500 executive, who at some point woke up and decided that there were better and more important things to do with my life. And I returned to my first loves of photography and screenwriting. I'm a dad. That's the only role I've ever had that I thought I was born to fulfill. So I have two daughters uh, who, of course, like just about any other dad, mean the world to me. And I have a wonderful relationship with my wife, Claudia, and my family and friends. And I've gotten to the point where it's important that I not be part of the problem and instead am part of the solution. So that's kind of what drives me. You quit the uh, um, highly, uh, I guess, uh, profitable Wall Street job. And uh, because I, I took a similar decision at some point in my life, I'm interested in how did you come to that conclusion? And how did it feel in the moment? How was it to kind of break the chain and go your own way? Well, I was 44 years old, living with my wife and children in Europe. And uh, was a one-tenth of one percenter. And a couple of things happened. My marriage started to fail. My health started to fail. And my father started dying. And so I realized that I needed to do something drastic. So just as I entered my peak earning years, I walked away from it. I walked away from the corporate life. And uh, that made it pretty darn easy, really. In the end, my father still died. My marriage didn't succeed. But it was a phoenix-like evolution, because from the ashes, I've come to a profoundly happier place. Did you ever look back and regret that time of your life? I actually don't. I regret that there are certain things that I did were stupid. It's, it's funny. You, the older you get, the more you realize how many things you did that were stupid. So I, I regret those things. But do I regret focusing on the work 
uh, which in turn allowed me to give my children extraordinary experiences, to give my family experiences, to give me experiences that most people never have. No, I don't regret that. Do I regret being asleep uh, in some ways? Sure. Do I regret that I thought that I was present for my children, uh, but my children had a different experience? Yes, I regret that. But that's the nature of life, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And we all kind of uh, learn from our mistakes, quote, quote. I think it's always important that you take the decisions when they're kind of up to take. So apparently you did that. And uh, yeah, I'm assuming you, you're a more happy person now. I, I absolutely am. Uh, it's interesting. You and I were talking about books just before we started recording the show. And the, the notion that there is a very different way of living than what is now an incredibly distorted American dream is important. And Claudia and I take our satisfactions and our joys from our families, of course, and our friends, but we take incredible joy from our photographic work, from the creativity that, that is inherent to seeing the world in a unique way, because each of us is the sum total of our experiences up until the point where we press the shutter, and then finding like-minded people with whom we can share that discovery. That is a, a great life approach, and, and I share that in general. I can just tell you from my experience in the corporate world, I went there for the creativity, but then I figured out that the creativity is not really wanted or only to a certain degree. And so I had, I had to leave to get happy again. So we share that kind of story together. You know, I understand that completely. And if you're a maker and a creative, you're probably running into limits when you're uh, existing in the corporate world. So you, you kind of went off and you guys, you and your wife, you founded a company. Well, to, 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 be, to be clear, uh, so uh, as I said, my marriage did not survive that period. So we ended up getting divorced. Now, when we came back to the United States with our children, I already knew that I was going to feed the creative side of my life. And uh, my wife at the time was a New York City ballet trained dancer and dance instructor. She'd studied under George Balanchine. So in an effort to save the marriage, uh, I funded uh, a ballet school, which I turned over to her in divorce because absolutely it was hers and I was just a support. But in that terrible aftermath, because divorces uh, as a category is one of those three most stressful things in life, I, I did meet Claudia. And we've been together 11 years now, married for one. We just celebrated our first anniversary. And I, I actually started Three Blind Men and an Elephant uh, before Claudia came into it. But Claudia has a full-time job. And yet... If you go back far enough in her history, uh, at one point she was a, a stylist, makeup artist, location scout, photographer's assistant in Zurich. Uh, there was a period of time where she was the it girl when, uh, when she was living in her home country. And so for her, she has taken a very different path to the same kind of place. We are, are the two people who now make up three blind men and an elephant. And to be able to share this with another person is extraordinary. 
That's amazing. If you can go on a quest together and it's like heartfelt and deep and you're really convinced that this is the way to go, it's one of the most amazing things you can uh, experience in life. I, I think that's true, Jens. I think that's really true. And sometimes I, I joke that we are Ray and Charles Eames, although I've never read their full biography. I hope they stayed together for the rest of their lives. <laughs> but, but they were a team. They were a team. They were an incredible uh, creative team. And we... We are each better for the other's presence. And that is a just, a, it's a very rare, rare thing. I'm a very fortunate person. Incredibly rare. I mean, you, you have to usually go through a few relationships in life until you find that one person where things are just right. Well, I think it's fair to say that we both did. <laughs> <laughs> well, so you, you, you kind of got together and, and then this whole thing started to uh, taken off the the three blind men and and the elephant how how did that go that transition was it successful from the start or you guys had to to struggle how how did that journey go well it's a very that's actually a great question claudia and i are very different people but uh i i came to know and really enjoy uh chris nichols and jordan drake we would see each other and people like tony and chelsea northrop or Matt Granger, Ted Forbes. But actually, uh, the thing about Ted is that he was like me, which is to say, we're one-man bands, or we were one-man bands. And I always was not jealous, that's not the right word. Uh, envious, that might be the right word. Yeah, envious might be the right word with, uh, with the fact that Chris had Jordan. Their production values, their division of labor just allowed them to do things that I found too difficult. And I knew Claudia was creative. I knew she had an eye because she'd always tell me what to do when we were <laughs> out together, but in only the best way. So I uh, asked her if she would help me. And at first it was just being there. And slowly over time, I would, will you take some pictures this time? Will you, okay, well, all right. And then Could you take just a couple of videos, just clips? Okay, here is a gimbal, Claudia. And this is when I learned that she is just about one of the best gimbal operators. That, well, she's the best gimbal operator I've ever worked with. Uh, she has the steadiest hand, the most precision in walking backwards through New York City I have ever seen or heard of. And call that Swiss precision. So, so at first she was doing it just to support me because she loves me. And at some point, and I, I really think that we can trace this back to uh, an event last May, so just over a year ago, out in California, Sony put on Condo 2.0. And at this point, Sony uh, and other manufacturers had come to accept and embrace Claudia as an integral part of the production team. And... You know, when, you, when you're introducing a new camera or you have something like Condo, they lend gear out, but it's relatively still constrained. You can't give gear to everyone. And very often when there are press events, a team, even if it's DP review or it's, uh, well, yeah, DP review or the camera store, TV, uh, only one person or one set of gear will go out. But by May of last year, Sony understood just what kind of contributions Claudia was making, and they gave her her own set of gear. And she just went off to the races. I, 
I don't recall ever seeing such an explosion of creativity in such a short period of time. And she has been on a tear ever since. I mean, she's had decades to develop an eye. She's had it. But now she is expressing that eye through her own work. And it's not just because I love her. I actually think it's extraordinary. I agree. I mean, even if you can either observe it with a partner or a friend, if you can see the explosion of creativity as a creative yourself, it's it's an amazing thing to observe as well. Yeah. And you make a, a great point about being able to experience that kind of joy, to share that kind of joy with a fellow creator. Uh, it's just, I think many of us pick up photography because we're loners, at least at the, at the very beginning. It's a way to fill time, to develop an expertise. We answer to no one but ourselves. And yet, at the same time, what's clear to me is that when you can share it with just one other person, uh, Stanley Milgram, uh, the psychologist, did experiments along these lines in the 1960s. Uh, Alan Funt, the creator of Candid Camera, who uh, was a psychology student, actually, did the same thing with his TV show. If you have just one other person, who sees things the way you do, uh, it changes things. It makes them better. And that's what we have. It's incredibly powerful. I mean, it's one of the, the reasons why I uh, always been drawn to artist collectives. Yes. Because as soon as, as you find a group of people just sharing a portion of the spirit, whatever that might be, it's just a magical thing. It is a magical thing. It also ends up being a commercial thing. Was it a year, two years? Uh, no, actually, it might have been half a decade ago, the centenary of the uh, uh, 1913 Armory Show. Uh, and Claudia and I were there. It struck me so hard, Jens, that you can't talk about art in a vacuum. You can't talk about art as an absolute. I, I always say that, that art is a relationship between the work however that work is defined, a photograph, performance art, music, whatever, film, and the consumer or the viewer of the art. It's, it's, art has nothing without the context or point of view of the person consuming it. And what, what became so clear to me is that whether it was Alfred Stieglitz, who is a critical uh, component of that 1913 Armory show, or uh, a Jackson Pollock with a Lee Krasner who could create a story around his work. Uh, so uh, then the patrons like a Peggy Guggenheim, the combination or ecosystem of artist, patron, uh, collaborator is what makes art accessible. And it is that collective which actually ends up placing a dollar sign on art, which is fascinating. That is true. It's a little bit of a, a love-hate relationship. I worked with uh, a few artists in, in larger artists in supporting roles and in projects. And uh, I mean, especially between the dollar side and the creative side, there's always a slightly ambivalent uh, relationship but they do need each other. Now, the other point you mentioned, which I'm strongly with you on that is when I take pictures, I usually say, I don't care what kind of emotion you get out of it. The key thing is before we even talk about that is that you do get an emotion out of the image because in absence of that, we fail to communicate. 
It's, it's such an interesting point. I, on the one hand, I agree with you that at the end it's less about pixels and much more about an emotional engagement with the piece of work. But some people will look at a piece of work and feel absolutely nothing, and other people will look at a piece of work and loathe it. Other people will look at a piece of work and fall in love with it. And as we tie this into social media, I, I think that's one of the most powerfully positive things about social media, which is it allows an artist to find his or her tribe. That's, that's the way that I look at it. You, you find other people for whom your work resonates. And you usually find that it's not just your work that resonates, but you find a, a commonality of experience or worldview. And that's a fantastic thing. I fully agree with you. Let's, let's talk, actually, let's talk uh, uh, social media. I would say, um, following up what you said, it's, it's again, for me, it's a bit of a 50-50 thing. There's a few things also which are dangerous these days. It's, it's similar like the, the record industry went in the 90s. Things now are way more accessible, but you're also supposed or you have to make more choices as the creative yourself. Where do you go and what do you do with your work? I think it's, it's very, very interesting. Uh, you talk about the audio industry. Uh, we measure dynamic range, low light performance, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The audio industry uh, often would measure or always measures signal to noise ratio. And that's why CDs took off because there was much more signal, that is the music, and much less noise, which were the crackles and clicks that came through the vinyl. Uh, the, the challenge in audio is that if you actually listen to, let's say, Led Zeppelin's Ramble On, and I know this because I did it with a reference set of headphones because I had them on my head, there are no clicks on the CD or the MP3, but when you then immediately switch to vinyl, you don't mind the clicks because you hear much more signal. In social media, it's the same kind of thing. There's a lot more noise a lot more noise and it's actually harder to find the signal but when you do find the signal when you get the full the full value of the signal it's an exceptionally wonderful thing i i fully agree with that and especially as a vinyl collector i do completely 100 understand your metaphor uh, I'm, I'm i'm with you on that let me let me pick something up that I saw in a, in a video, in an interview you did with uh, one of the great masters, Elliot Irvitt. <laughs> I, 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 I said this, uh, I've said this a number of times, but I think when I actually sit down with people, almost invariably I fall a little bit in love with the person. And I hope you, the, the audience for this podcast understands what I mean by that. It's, it's a very pure kind of thing. And I fell a little bit in love with Elliot. I'd never met the man. And even, even as he entered his 90th year, his humor was just exceptional. It's, it's a great piece. It's, uh, you'll find it on, uh, on uh, I think, on Hugh's homepage and on YouTube as well. The part 
that I would like to look into is that you presented to Mr. Irvitt a theory that if uh, Bresson would be uh, <laughs> shooting today and he was 20 years old, he would be using a smartphone. And uh, Mr. Irvitt didn't hesitate for a second. He said, no, he would not for technical reasons. Yes. Now, I wrote something last year for the Fujilov magazine and I said that if Robert Frank was alive today and was 20, how would he use Instagram or how would they react to the possibilities of today's social media? What's your take on that? What do you think uh, somebody like Frank or Irvid would do today with the social media if they were 20 years old? What a, what a wonderful question. First of all, I just want to say that with as much respect as I have for Elliot Irwitt, and as and with all humility of my own very modest talents i i have no problem with that i think he's wrong <laughs> i think i think that that if if he were 20 years old today he'd be using an iphone and elliot what he said was you can't compose through uh, a phone the way you can through a viewfinder and i i think that on the one hand that's true especially with the glare of sunlight on the other hand i'm looking right now as we're speaking jens at what is now mine but was my mother's 1938 like a 3a uh, and if you ever look through the viewfinder of that camera you sit there and say to yourself no wonder they used why they used zone focus no wonder why they they shot from the hip because you can't see a thing through that viewfinder. So, so, uh, but I have to have it CLA'd and, and fair enough. But I, I think that this signal to noise metaphor comes back into play because if your objective is to build awareness of your work, Instagram is both a wonderful place and a terrible place to, to do it. Uh, we, Claudia and I, so enjoy uh, the London photographer and YouTuber, Sean Tucker, uh, an incredibly sweet man and a wonderful street photographer. And he is incredibly successful on Instagram. He has, I, last time I looked, he had something like 175,000 followers and well-earned. But if you know the history of Robert Frank's The Americans, published in 1958, and now, uh, half a century later, regarded by many as the most important photography book or book of photographs of the 20th century, or you know the backstory of Henri Cartier-Bresson's The Decisive Moment, you know these two things, respectively. First, when it comes to Robert Frank's The Americans, he took 28,000 photographs for that project. Mm -hmm. 28,000. And the number is something less than 100 that made the book. Uh, similarly, over the course of his lifetime, uh, Cartier-Bresson took well over half a million photographs. Uh, and how many photographs of his have actually made it into the public domain? 500. A thousand. So my my point is, my point is that both of those men used the curation process and editors to help them whittle down an enormous number of images to the absolute best, and then they had uh, they each had a committed ecosystem to help raise those images above the noise. 
Today, that same thing doesn't exist the same way. So you can get discovered on Instagram and you can get a, a marketing contract to be a social media influencer. Uh, it's, it's a lot harder. And I'm, I'm actually unclear how many people in the art world, the world of art photography, are discovered through Instagram. And I, I wonder if uh, someone like Cartier-Bresson or Robert Frank would embrace it as 20-year-olds because they'd be social media savvy from the get-go, or would they be the kinds of people to reject it outright, to be old souls, as it were, and say, no, I'm not, I'm not participating in this at all, at all. You can argue, especially in the case of Robert Frank, uh, he was Swiss, he came to the United States, and he was stunned by not only the crass consumerism of the United States back in the, the mid-50s, but also in the social and political hypocrisies of our country. So I imagine Robert Frank, for one, would say, forget about Instagram. I'm not playing. I don't know about Cartier-Bresson. I, I suspect he would be the same way. I, I can tell you, and I'm, I'm not 100% sure, by the way, uh, Robert Frank grew up about 50 meters away from where I used to live in Zurich for, for a very long time. His father had, a, I think, a bicycle store. He fled to America because Switzerland was too boring. Now, <laughs> let, let me pick that up with the 28,000 images because I'm, 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 I'm uh, taking Irvit again as an example from your interview, and I'm paraphrasing him because you ask him, what, what advice can you give? And he said, don't take pictures, take good pictures, yes. stay away from conceptual photography, yes. observe the rules of composition. Yes. And now be boring, be traditional. Photography is a craft, not using your telephone. Now, if we skip the telephone part, yes. the question I'm asking myself is, how many of those images would Frank have put on Instagram? And I believe it wouldn't have been many because it's more about what kind of philosophy you drive with your photography and then using Instagram as an outlet after the whole edit process, the whole kind of, you know, simmering down things. Uh, I believe they maybe would have used it like that, but I cannot see Robert Frank traveling across America with his family and in a 2019 sense, making it a 20 part YouTube series and uh, 50 Instagram stories a day, because that would not support his general approach. What, what a wonderful thing to say. I, I'm thinking at the moment about Casey Neistat, who I had the opportunity to meet for about eh, 45 seconds. And in that 45 seconds, I, I deduce that he's actually a very nice human being. But much of his life is on YouTube. And he's built uh, a career out of that. I, I don't think that Robert Frank was built like Casey Neistat is. It takes a very special kind of person. And I don't say that in a, in a negative way. It's just two very, very different people. So I, I think you're right. It's, it's easy to agree that uh, someone like Robert Frank would be very selective, uh, even on Instagram, with what he posts. And again, returning to Sean Tucker on YouTube, he's an example of someone who I think has put out less than 100 videos. I don't even know if he's put out quite 50 videos. And yet he also has an extraordinary following. But he is a very, very rare exception. For the most part, if you are not posting daily, uh, you, you just disappear into the noise. So I, I think it's a terrific challenge.
I think I can counter that personally, that theory to a degree. Uh, I wrote about this in an article for the for the photographer. I did not post anything on Instagram for a year. And I gained uh, uh, a few followers, actually, during that time. Uh, for me, a remarkable amount, as I have don't have many followers, and I'm fine with that. The point was, all those people came from other sources. It's maybe also a thing to say Instagram can, if it's your main carrier, you're totally dependent on that platform. And probably people can also just come generally because they notice you and then they kind of follow you on Instagram. But I'm not sure if Instagram itself can be the, the core driver of going forward. I, I, I think you raise an excellent point. Look, why do, why do we use it? So for us, uh, we just hit uh, a milestone. I just hit a milestone. 4,000 Instagram followers, yay. Um, but what's interesting is I, I follow maybe 200 people. And I only follow people I know. I only follow people I know because if I follow more people, then the feed gets so cluttered that I spend entirely too much time trying to triage what I'm looking at. So, and I think 200 people is too much, but it's not too much because I know them and I want to support them. So even within this giant amount of noise for, for some of us, there's signal once again, returning to that. And, and people we know support us too. The thing about Instagram and YouTube, going back to this notion of finding one's tribe, is that both platforms, and Facebook for that matter, although I use that very little at this point, and it's more of an annoyance than anything else, allows us to meet people we would never meet otherwise. But in the end, one of the reasons why I don't do tutorials on YouTube, uh, why I don't teach courses on YouTube is not that I don't enjoy teaching. I do. I, I was a teaching fellow in, in both universities that I attended as a young man. And my father was an academician. I like doing that in person. So we, we had a couple of workshops. We'll have a couple of more. And these are limited to a maximum of 10 people. And the relationships that come out of these things, it's, it's a joy. It's just a joy. It's, I mean, pe pe meeting people and working on the meeting real passionate people is always a joy. As we mentioned before, like, like enlarging your circle of, of, of creative people around you is just enriching in, in general in life. Yes, I, I absolutely agree with you. Uh, let me ask you this. I, I, from my point of view, I believe when we talk about social media, there's a difference between selling uh, an image or uh, a product. And I believe more photographers probably are introverts than extroverts and might struggle to constantly seek the spotlight. After all, my life experience tells me that the loudest are not necessarily the most interesting, although that's not an absolute. Oh, I agree. I agree with you. I absolutely agree with you. What, what do you think? We as visual people or creators, should we be more aware that we are maybe not influencers when it comes to how we approach social media? Where do we draw the line between a photographer and an influencer slash salesperson? What a great question. I have to think about that. We, I, I, I started on YouTube really while I was still a writer for Planet 5D. Most people probably don't know that I was the lead writer for Planet 5D for a year and a half, something like that. And I just started to enjoy video. It was the Canon 5D Mark II that, that got me into video. 
And what I started, what I, the reason why I started writing for Planet 5D is because Mitch Onger, who's another really nice guy, just started chatting with me on the website one day and I was asking him a question. He said, well, why don't you write about that? I said, well, yeah, okay. And what that became was me sharing my journey of discovery or rediscovery of photography after having put down my cameras for the better part of 20 years, actually, to pursue life, not as a photographer, but as a human being. And, and YouTube, up until uh, March of last year, was just me sharing. And then I said, oh my, this is actually a full-time thing here, so I might as well go for it, which is, is what I did. But it's this inherent motivation of sharing that that I find most interesting and what I find least interesting are the people who use social media to how do I put this to be famous yes and that's the reason why I ask you this I think there's a I mean let me let me put rephrase the question differently what I'm what I'm wondering is what is the value proposition of a photographer today because a photographer cannot just be a self-centered salesperson. Well, so there's a lot to unpack there. First, if you take the question quite literally, the value of a photographer by and large is much less than the value of a photographer 50 years ago during the era of the photo magazines, time and life. The value of a photographer is much less than the era when you had to have a specific knowledge base to manipulate the gear. Whereas today you can pick up a smartphone and get incredible shots. But I, I think one of the things that, that Claudia and I find most interesting, I'm, I'm a writer, even before I'm a photographer or a filmmaker. I mean, I'm an option screenwriter. Uh, I was in the corporate world for many years as an analyst. And that was all about writing and presentation. Uh, and what I find most interesting are photographers who also have a command of the language. Cartier-Bresson famously hated writing captions for his work, but he became good at it. And for the most part, we, we as photographers let our work speak or not speak for itself. Most writers will not tell you what they think their words mean because they want the person reading the work to draw their own conclusions. But to survive as a professional photographer, wow, I don't know how many people at this point in the world exist making a living being simply a photographer. The, the Pulitzer Prize winning photographers and, and, and renowned professional photographers that I know at this point, that is the ones who, who came, who have come to it today, uh, do so by being other things as well. They're not just photographers. They're educators, they're presenters, they're ambassadors. It's a, a very different world. I'm not sure that I'm answering the question that you're asking, but that's what pops into my head. No, I think you do. I mean, it's really a question that I've been thinking about a lot is where do we draw the line? We have to sell, quote, quote, ourselves on social media. We're photographers. We're visual creators. We want to be seen. That's part of the deal. But I think there's a line to go over. And I'm wondering 
if if you see it the same way where i think there's a slight danger sometimes that we can become very self-obsessed on social media and it's all about look at me look what i've done look where i'm at <laughs> where if we go really really back to what Irvid said if you want to be boring if you want to be traditional if you want to work long term on projects you have to take a different approach because otherwise you're going to one turn people off and second you're not going to have the energy and the time to invest into that kind of work wonderful point wonderful point because really it gets down to as i'm listening to you i experience it as being about superficiality versus depth uh, by the time uh, cartier Bresson became a founding member of magnum he was already world renowned and one of the things that was interesting about cartier Bresson is that he would not simply take assignments you know go there for two weeks no he went to china for years so that he could really understand what was going on. In 2017, in March 2017, the 31st of March 2017, I took delivery of a Panasonic GH5 because I knew I was going to devote a period of time to exploring the Mariner East Hazardous Liquids Pipeline being rammed down the throats of people across the southern tier of Pennsylvania. And at this point, it was a passion project. I had no intention of, of getting paid for it. It's how I wanted to spend my time and use the gear because, again, I wanted to be part of a solution and not part of the problem. The problem in this instance I perceived to be not understanding uh, how big the problem was, that it wasn't tree huggers and, and lefties, you know, just throwing terms out who were nuts but rather a perversion or a subversion of American democracy. So that we're at 25 episodes of that now. It's two years later. We're still going through it. And that work may, makes me a better human being, I think. That's the kind of thing that's interesting. Uh, there are people there who make it all about them. I get it. And, and I have to tell you, it's interesting. Have you noticed all of the filters that are used on television now so that people who are 80 years old look like they're 25? Yes. <laughs> it, it, is, it is frightening. It's absolutely frightening. And I shoot my YouTube videos in 4K. I render in 4K. I post in 4K. The camera is reasonably close. When I'm editing it, I'm spending most of the time looking at myself and it, it's profoundly uninteresting. The only thing that's interesting is I use no filters. You see every dog hair from Sophie on my black turtleneck. You see every hair out of place. You see when I have a dust speck on my glasses. And I actually like that because that's real. Yeah, it's reality. And, and if you talk about the project you mentioned, I think one of the defining factors about it is you go long term because you're passionate. You don't go long term because you want to show off. No, and you look, this is how one learns. You know, Wikipedia is a wonderful thing. It's amazing. In 45 seconds, you can, you can be somewhat educated. But the key is somewhat, which is and like kind of not at all, really. Not at all, really. There's no substitute. Right. There's, and what it should be is a prompt to go much deeper. And I, I think that's what Elliot was, was saying. Yeah. This, this takes anything worthwhile takes work. It takes 
study. It takes time. And the more you know, the more you learn, the more you know how much you don't know. Yep. Of course, it's, it's axiomatic that what you do know is infinitesimally small compared to what you do. But we seem to live in a society where too many people forget that, where they think they have all the answers, where they think that because they have an opinion, it's, it's valid and everybody else should know it. And that's just not true. I think there's something very interesting about what you said, because I think there's a thing, such a thing as the creative rush. You kind of enjoy the first one or two years when you discover something, and then you actually realize how much you don't know. What is why there's such a circle as, as two, three, four years, for example, in street photography. Most people pick it up, get very excited, produce some reasonable results, and then figure to go the next step. I have to invest a lot of work and I know nothing. And that's where most people unfortunately drop out again. It was, what a wonderful thing, because I, I have the exact opposite reaction. It's, oh, wow, there is so much I don't know. What an opportunity to learn and get better. That's, that's really how I think about it. And that was how we came. We, I, this is how I came to name the company Three Blind Men and an Elephant. It is an Indian parable. It has an analog in Chinese culture, I learned last year. But it's this, you know the story, Jens? I read it on your homepage, but please share it for everybody to hear. So three blind men bump into an elephant. One hits the leg and figures it's the trunk of a tree. Another one actually bumps into the trunk of the elephant and thinks it's a snake. The other one is a little bit slow. He doesn't bump into the elephant until he reaches the tail, and then he figures it's a broom. And from this, all kinds of wonderful things happen, starting with this. One man's subjective truth, one man's subjective truth is not necessarily the subjective truth of another's, and neither may be the actual or objective truth. And this in turn leads to a bunch of questions. For example, would it have taken a sighted man to arrive for the three blind men to realize they were blind? What would have happened if they'd used their other senses? of smell, of hearing? What would have happened if they'd worked together and spoken to each other? Would they have come up with the actual truth? I'm told that in the Chinese version, the moral of the story is the value of humility. But for me, it resonated because it was about understanding the totality of what's before us. And it is that, that curiosity, which informs everything that I do. So I understand, uh, I forget the name of the effect that you're talking about, where people think that they're better than they are. Uh, and they go through this period where uh, at one point, they're too ignorant to understand how not good they are. And then at some point past that, they realize, oh, I'm not that good. And as you pointed out, that's when many of them leave. But for me, it's like the, uh, oh, the, the, old, the old joke about the little kid who runs into a barn and steps into a steaming pile of horse poop. And he breaks into this huge grin. And he is happy. And his father follows him in and says, Johnny, why are you so happy? And Johnny looks at his dad and says, well, there must be a pony in the barn. You know, it's like that. 
it's it's all about perception i love that i love that story also the, 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 i mean now that i understand why you came to that title it's it's a it's a beautiful metaphor it's a beautiful metaphor also for being creative by the way uh the cycle we talk about about understanding how learning and creativity works i share your excitement about that i soak uh, knowledge up uh, everywhere i can well, I think uh, what it's it's the Dunning Kruger effect. That's what we're talking about. Oh, there you go. There you go. What I think is important on that topic is that you ha you have to understand once you start doing something in the creative field that this cycle is part of your existence. It will never go away. Of course. And at the point you feel it has gone away, you need to check yourself before you wreck yourself because you probably lost it at that point. Yes, exactly. Whatever you call it, going through phases where things are not fun or an, an, an integral part of succeeding in anything. Well, look, it's, it's as simple as the weather, right? You can't really appreciate sunshine unless you know what it's like to be in the dark. Correct. You, you can't appreciate the thrill of discovery unless you've also experienced no discovery. You can't experience joy the same way you can if you haven't experienced pain. True words. I, I don't have much to add to that. That's uh, my, <laughs> my, my life experience says you're right and I, I share your approach. After we've been slightly philosophical and I'm sure we can go down that route way further and deeper, let's, let's go to a very practical point of view. If I'm 20 today, and I want to, I just started photography a year ago. I think I have some good pictures and I want to kind of, you know, have them seen, get on my way on social media. What's the practical advice you can give? Well, the first one is keep your day job. Because the odds of you being discovered and plucked from the Twitterverse or Instagram or Facebook are just against you, full stop. And and in the end, I think it's actually much more important to develop relationships, personal relationships, working relationships. And it's back to Elliot Erwood's point. It's develop the craft, develop the eye. By the way, you can't have an eye if you don't have a modicum of experience and you mind that experience your your unique voice comes from those experiences i mean cartier brisson grew up uh, a scion of one of the wealthiest families in france he, his family was one of the 200 wealthiest families in france they'd made their fortunes from cotton mills actually and while he was a beneficiary of their affluence and had the wherewithal to travel wherever he wanted and take photographs without having to work. And he did have an eye, an incredible eye. It wasn't until he actually had the experience of World War II being uh, in a prisoner of war camp, which he tried to escape from multiple times, finally escaping on the third time, that there was a, a profound shift in the quality, the substance of what he was shooting. So it, um, I guess my, what I'm saying to you, Jens, is that 
I, I really wonder if social media, Instagram in particular, is, is the way to make that happen. Now, if you just happen to hit something big uh, and all of a sudden you've got 100,000 followers, then opportunities will flow your way. It's same thing, same thing with, with YouTube. But if you think of social media as a marketing arm, that's an appropriate thing to do because there are some people on YouTube and Instagram. I have you spent much time on Instagram TV? Uh, not as much um, depends on who is posting it. I follow a similar philosophy as you. I try to like follow people that I that I really like. So depends. I, I started on Instagram TV just because I was reaching that point where I was saying to myself, if it really is the case that our attention spans or just doing video on on Instagram, if really we have to shoot in a vertical format for less than 60 seconds on Instagram before there was Instagram TV, I don't want to do it. I just, I don't want to do it. But as soon as I had that experience, it was an echo of my reaction to the Apple Newton decades ago, which was when I first saw it, I said, this is dead on arrival. And as soon as I felt that, I said, okay, I'm going to go out and buy one because I don't want to ossify. In that particular case, I just wasted my money because yeah, it was a bad idea. But with, with uh, Instagram TV, I spent a little time looking at what was coming through and it was so profoundly distressing to me that I just turned it off. I haven't looked at Instagram TV in months because the people who were being successful, quote unquote successful on something like Instagram TV, I have no patience for. I, I, I experience it as all noise and no signal. So I don't think I don't think I'm the right person to offer advice on on how to make social media the tool. If you, in other words, if you're already great at what you're doing, if you are willing to invest a tremendous amount of time to feed the social media beast, which is what you have to do, if you have the energy and the talent to combine those two things, it is the lowest cost way from a monetary perspective to get exposure. But it is daunting how much effort is required to make that successful. I agree. And I would also, I think you're right on, on, on what you said. And I would also point out that you have to check what culture are you getting into. If you're a creative or a photographer, you are kind of uh, bound to that core discipline you're trying to get good at or you're trying to be uh, go deeper in it while instagram actually or companies on instagram if they if they feature you if they pay you they uh, purely pull out your reach and and use you for promotion it doesn't necessarily mean they acknowledge your creative efforts you just have a, a critical size which becomes from a marketing point of view interesting to them so i would always ask myself is it the one or the other what a wonderful point what a wonderful point. So there, there are a couple of things to unpack there as well. Do you want, is, is your ambition to be a spokesperson for a brand? If, if you do, then again, this is the lowest cost way to make that happen. But it is often a, a Faustian bargain. 
isn't it? But there's another thing that we haven't talked about yet, and that is you now have to feed the beast not only in terms of posting, but engaging. Now, I love, I love our YouTube audience for Three Blind Men and an Elephant. I am struck on a daily basis by the, the generosity, the intelligence, the knowledgeability of so many of our uh, YouTube viewers. It is an incredible gift. On the other hand, we are not immune to trolls. And it's, it's interesting. I've seen uh, YouTubers who are much, much bigger than I am get absolutely hammered. Uh, and I have a, a fairly basic take. And this is something that you have to contend with if you're going to get into social media, which is how do you engage with your viewership? With Instagram, there's a reason why they have uh, emoticons, because if you actually had to type responses, it would just, there wouldn't be enough hours in the day. With YouTube, the comments are, are much richer. These are, these are not about likes so much as they are about engaging with the subject matter. So that's something different. But every now and again, you'll get a troll. And either you let them get to you or you don't. And the first time, first few times you experience trolls, uh, it can be devastating because trolls seem to be good at precisely one thing, which is finding fault lines and then putting pressure on them. But I, I have a, a different view, which is I conceptualize our YouTube channel as an open invitation to come to our home, our YouTube home, and anyone is welcome. But if the first thing you do when you come into my home is take a crap on the floor, you're gone. You're just gone. Of course there's, you are. There's no conversation. There's no conversation. And, and again, it's about finding your tribe. There are people who will like what you do and people who hate it. And you have to be emotionally constituted so that you're okay with that. I think it's a beautiful point. And I would combine two things. One thing is if you look for your tribe, you will find it. If you, if you, I mean, you know, there's certain tactics you can apply to social media, the whole follow for follow oh, thing. No. You can buy oh, no, follow. No, there's no, a whole no. lot of, no, whole no. lot of range. Yes, whole lot of range you can go, but, but you have to deal with what you attract. And uh, if you invite masses that are not interested in you, they will also not respect you. So my personal philosophy that it comes down to, I rather have my, and and I, I I like each and every one of them, my few thousand Instagram followers. But I know they are there even if I don't post anything because they will enjoy my next picture, and I don't have to entertain them every day, so I'm not shallow. And uh, if that's my tribe, I'll take it, and I'm happy with it. Absolutely, absolutely right. How many? It's it's interesting. They're the most successful uh, performers, entertainers, know what it's like to get. And they're, they're so rare, but they have the experience of the feeling of 50,000 people adoring them in person when you too puts on a concert or when Madonna back in the day or whoever it is right now, you know, is at a live concert. The energy is extraordinary. But there aren't that many people who are at that level of performer who are also capable of finding the same joy on a consistent basis with just one or two other people. So 
it's important, again, to understand who you are, to what extent you're an introvert or an extrovert, and where you find your happiness. We are on the Fujilove podcast, so we cannot avoid a few gear questions <laughs> I have to direct to you. It's fine, because I love Fuji. They're doing incredible things. I'm just going to pick that up. I saw one of your videos talking about the X-T2, the X-T3, and let me just check if that's still the case. You stated there that you're absolutely in love with, uh, with Fujifilm and, and the current, uh, especially X-T3 camera. Is that still the case? And if so, what made you fall in love with them? Yeah, well, the X-T2 actually is what rekindled my absolute joy of photography. That, that's a very powerful thing, an important thing to say. The 5D Mark II, I've been a Canon shooter for 40 years. But, and, and the 5D Mark II is what introduced me to video. So I have a debt of gratitude, if you will, to the Canon 5D Mark II. It was the Sony a6000 however, to which I switched, that led me to 4K. Uh, not because the A6000 did 4K, but because its successor, the 6300, did. And as a photographer, I always felt that even full HD was mushy. I, I just hated it. And so getting to 4K was the first time that I was satisfied with the image quality. So my focus for a couple of years was video. And still, of course, remains very much so to this day. But I, my, my audience, my YouTube audience said, Hugh, you really need to look at the Fuji X-T2. And so I said, okay. So I got my hands on one with the 16mm 1.4 and the 56mm 1.2. I told them those were the two lenses that I want. I am a primes kind of guy. I generally just don't like zooms at all. It doesn't matter that the IQ gap is closing. I don't like the weight. I prefer the faster speeds of primes. And these two lenses blew me away. The optics blew me away. But the fact that Fuji understood the exposure triangle, when most camera manufacturers seem to have given up that ghost years ago, when they introduced the mode dial on Canons and Nikons back in, what, the 80s? Uh, I understand why they did it. But today the issue is not, okay, if I put it on sports, the camera's gonna jack up the shutter speed. If I put it on portrait, it's going to dial down the shutter speed in response to the shallow depth of field that we figure you want with a uh, maximum aperture. That's not where the, the, the slowdown is now although people have come to rely on it. I mean, with smartphones, you don't have that. You don't need it. You just tap and go. The issue now is, paradoxically enough, autofocus. Uh, you spend more time futzing with autofocus modes than you ever did with exposure uh, and focus. So the X-T2 was revelatory because there it was, right on the camera. You didn't even have to have the camera turned on. There was a real aperture ring. There was a real ISO ring. And there was a real shutter ring. And that was it. Sure, it had a menu, but you didn't need to spend time with it. And if you wanted to have aperture preferred, you leave the shutter speed and the ISO on A, and you just dial in with the aperture ring. Conversely, if you want uh, shutter priority, you set the other two on A. I mean, it was just fantastic. And it was small, and it was lightweight. And for photography, the autofocus was absolutely 
fine. And the image quality and the film simulations. I fell in love with Acros because, I mean, I, I started photography when I was six. I had a dark room by the time I was 12. It was our family bathroom. I was teaching photography and running a program at a summer camp by the time I was 16. I was actually uh, working in a photo store when I was 14. I had all of this history and all of a sudden I came to the X-T2 and it was black and white photography, exposure triangle, clean prime glass, and that was it. We have a 27 by 40 inch print hanging on our wall in our living room of uh, an image I captured in 2017 at the New York City Tax March Day. It looks like nothing to me so much as medium format quality of that, out of that 24 megapixel uh, X-Trans or sensor. I mean, just exceptional. So I loved that camera. I still do. The X-T3 made the autofocus even better. It gave it much better video capabilities. But by that time, I'd already settled on the GH5. And the GH5 still is, for what we do, a better video camera. It has unlimited recording ability, uh, whereas the X-T2 is constrained to 30 minutes. Uh, it, you don't need to get grip in order to have a headphone jack or a mic jack. I don't even remember. And the GH5 has IBIS. So right now, and, and for those people who say, ah, IBIS is not important, all I say is spend a month with it and then tell me if it's still nothing to you. Because whether it's video or stills photography, it just makes a huge difference. It just does. And uh, of course, the X-H1 has the IBIS that the X-T2 and X-T3, the X-T20 and X-T30 don't, but it doesn't have the uh, autofocus of the X-T3, and it doesn't have the video capabilities of the X-T3, so I'm still waiting for an X-H2. If they had had an X-H2 in 2017, I probably never would have gone into uh, Micro Four Thirds. Well, there's a there's a theory floating around uh, that uh, future Fujifilm cameras might have all IBs, and they are uh, heavily working on getting that done. Now, that ties into my next question. Actually, if you could address anything to Fujifilm that you wish they would do to their cameras or implement in their cameras, what would it be? Well, I I know. Uh, for a fact that Fuji understands the importance of IBIS and the need to shrink IBIS down. I know this from spending time with Justin Staley, and you can read about this in, in other uh, interviews that are out there. They, they understand this very, very well. The challenge is that, especially when you get to super full frame, I love it when they called it that as opposed to that. large format. Yeah. I, think that's, that, I think that's actually most accurate. We can get into a whole discussion about digital medium format versus film medium format. I mean, there are multiple standards for film medium format, but when you talk about the medium format look, you don't get nearly as much of that with the current uh, sensor size of the GFX series as you do with the film camera that I own, which is a Bronica GS1, which is six by seven centimeters. You know, it's, it's just a different thing. 
So I, I think that Fuji is doing a, a fantastic job. And I know that if they could, they would put IBIS into an X-T3 or call it an X-T4. Uh, and the idea of being able to keep the camera small is, is just really, really exciting. And I don't even begrudge them that on the GFX100, which as it is an incredible tour de force, incredible tour de force, I don't begrudge them the fact that they've taken the dials off. It makes sense. It makes absolute sense. Would I like a GFX50 where they slim down that ugly uh, Chris Bangle butt back <laughs> and, leave the, and leave the dials on? I would love that because I would have a chance of being able to afford that. Well, on eBay used maybe anyway. I think they're working on that. I mean, as you said, Fujifilm knows what we kind of look forward to and wish for. And uh, even if we see certain technology introduced right now, I think, uh, as you said, Fuji knows that we're kind of looking for the same form factor. I'm sure there's many people working on that as we speak. The one thing that I've said uh, about Fuji before is actually the lens line. Because uh, I love the image quality, but like the old Canon lenses, uh, there are times when you're in video and you're moving from one focus point to another, there you can hear the motor. And or as you're zooming, and again, I don't like zooms. I actually hate zooms, especially in, in, in motion. But as you zoom and the, the focus changes, there's a, a step function. There's a step function in the apertures. So I think in some instances, they need to refresh their lens lines and uh, use the smoothest, highest performance motors and the most seamless uh, movement of the aperture. I think those are things for them to work on. But really, you could give me pretty much any of their higher-end lenses. Their, their red badge zooms, I don't like zooms, fine. But red badge zooms are incredible. And because these are crop sensor cameras and crop sensor coverage lenses, they pack quite a punch in a compact size. Have you ever tried the uh, Cinema MK lenses? Oh, my God. I sure have. The uh, MK, what is it, 18 to 55 and 50 to yep. 135 or something like that. Yep. So those lenses are just wonderful. The image quality, their resolving power is extraordinary. The lack of focus breathing is, is just wonderful. Those are a pair of incredible optics. My only uh, uh, constructive criticism that I would offer is that I would love to see the uh, 18 go down to 16. And the reason why is because I, interesting, we're talking about two millimeters, but I actually much prefer the field of view of a 16 millimeter. It's the full frame equivalent of 24. I much prefer that to 28. 28 is just not quite wide enough. 21 is getting extreme. 24 really rocks my world. Uh, I, wish, I wish that they would also have a tilting EVF for their APS-C cameras. I, I actually like that better than uh, a swing out flippy screen. I mean, I like flippy screens, screens better than just tilties, 
But what I've learned is that you actually see the world differently if your camera is below eye level. And there are times when I want to get down in the dirt and I don't like lying down in the dirt. I can, I can, I can relate, I can relate to that. Plus there's a beauty about this point of view. I think I, I can't remember who I discussed it with, but sure with, uh, with Damien uh, Lovegrove, we talked about this for quite a while. If you look at 50s, 60s movies, classical movies, they're all shot waistline or lower. It is so interesting. I've come to experience that recently with myself. Uh, with this Bronica GS1, I bought it with a waist level finder. I didn't want the prism finder. I wanted to have that experience. And you look at the uh, street work of Vivian Meyer. Uh, she's shooting, or, or Fan Ho. They both shot with uh, Raleigh Flex TLRs. So they're shooting, this does two things. One, it makes them less obtrusive because they're looking down. So that makes them more... Uh, unobtrusive they kind of disappear into the landscape and two they are shooting a lot lower down at least a foot and it changes things oh tremendously i i only shoot like that the only wish i had is that when you use the t3 and you use it like a roller flex that the viewfinder wouldn't extend into the screen area yes you're you're so right i forgot about that this is a problem with most of these screens and i don't understand how a camera company puts that out well i think i think they know i mean i've i've been asked and i i addressed it and i think there's others that say it as well so maybe the next iteration will just allow you to pull the screen back for about a, a centimeter or something like that and the problem solved yeah yeah i think that's all that it would take i think that's actually a great point thank you for bringing that up speaking of all that it would take my last question if we drop you on a lonely island and you get one camera and one lens what would it be is there internet connectivity? I don't think that the old lonely island has internet. <laughs> because, because if there were internet connectivity, it would be an iPhone. I'll copy that. Okay. Because then I can share it, including help. I'm trapped on a desert island and, you know, I've got a GPS, I've got a GPS in the camera and there are two lenses in it anyway, and there's a zoom in it and computational imaging is great, but assuming, but, and, and why not? Because, uh, here's the thing. If you drop me on a desert island, and there's no electricity, I'm only going to be able to use the camera for a couple of hundred shots. If you drop me on the desert island with a film camera, I've only got as many shots as a roll of film, and I will die before either one of them <laughs> can, can really do anything. But I understand your, your point. If I could only have one camera and uh, only one lens, then, you know... An X-T2, because I'm not going to be shooting video, with their 35 1.4. That would, that would do it for me. That would do it for me. It's utterly reliable. The 35 1.4 on the APS-C is equivalent of a 50mm F2, but it's got that exposure triangle, as I said before, manual of arms, which is unbeatable. Uh, the only reason to do the X-T3, actually, and now that I think about it, okay, X-T3 instead of X-T2, is not because of the video, but because the viewfinder is a higher resolution. Yeah, no, that's it. An X-T3 with their 35 
Good. So that that's what we're going to find after you you died on the lonely island. <laughs> yeah, right. Right. Going I should have gotten the iPhone. <laughs> <laughs> All right. That kind of sums up the podcast. Any last words you want to share with the with the Fuji Love community? Well, you know, Jens, it's it's an interesting thing that I've learned over the last two years. The commentary on my reviews of Fuji gear stand apart from the commentary on my reviews of other brands. And again, I'm extremely fortunate, Claudia and I are extremely fortunate because we have such a wonderful audience across brands because that's kind of color war at the end of the day. But the the level of generosity, kindness, enthusiasm, passion, positivity. And, and I'm not saying this to you because this is Fuji love. I'm saying this to you because it's true. Is just it just sets it apart. Fuji lovers for whatever reason, are slightly different from fans of the other brands. Uh, Leica is close. Leica is close. I would I would support that, and I'm sure uh, Tomas would as well, and many members of the Fuji Love community. Now um, we are gonna see you in fall this year in New York at a little event called Fuji Love Life, which is gonna happen on October 12th and 13th in New York City at the Bathhouse Studios. And if you want to hear more from Hugh and his take on social media and photography, join us there. Otherwise, I'm sure we're gonna read and uh, hear you soon again you such a pleasure that you were part of this podcast and thank you so much for spending time with us really truly jens it was my pleasure thank you for having me on thank you for checking in and listening to the fujilove.com podcast check out fujilove.com where we live and breathe all things fujifilm and photography with fujifilm camera